You are in the ring with Hector Colon, seven-time national boxing champion turned nonprofit president and CEO. Hector knocks out the big issues facing social services today with high-impact leaders from around the U.S. In the Ring is a creation of Lutheran Social Services of Wisconsin and Upper Michigan and is produced by No Studios. And now, here's Hector Colon. Hello, 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 and welcome to In the Ring with Hector Colon, the show that gets real about the challenges facing the social services sector and the people we serve. Here's the bottom line. Pay is not commensurate to the value our colleagues provide society. The policies and the resources are not advancing quick enough in order to address the real needs of the people we serve. And the financial viability of our sector is in jeopardy. It's not a fair fight. That's why this year we're going to take on these issues with people at the center of these challenges, true champions who are willing to get into the ring with me. As my coach Shorty used to say, let's go champ. In the ring with me today is Tracy Warings Evans. Tracy is the president and CEO of the American Public Human Services Association, a bipartisan national membership organization representing the cabinet-level leadership at state and local health and human service agencies and subject matter experts that help execute their mission to improve outcomes for people nationwide. Tracy, in coordination with its governing board, sets the strategic direction for the association and spearheads delivery on its mission, which is to advance the well-being of all people by influencing modern approaches to sound policy, building the capacity of public agencies to enable healthy families and communities, and connecting leaders to accelerate learning and generate practical solutions together. I have to say I was able to witness this firsthand when I was the Director of Health and Human Services for Milwaukee County, it was great to be close to Tracy and really learn from her through those efforts. Tracy has a long history in high policy development and public administration. She served as a senior advisor to U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Janet Napolitano, before moving to Washington, D.C. in 2009. As the Director for their Arizona Department of Economic Security, an integrated human services agency. I would definitely like to follow up with you on, on your service with uh, Secretary Janet Napolitano. That must be very interesting. Tracy is also a career litigator. She served as on more than 25 boards and advisory committees over the course of her career, serving on several national appointments. Her current board services include Social Current and Work Rise. In 2019, she was selected as a fellow to the National Academy of Public Administration. Tracy, you are an outstanding leader, a great partner, and a dear friend. Thank you so much for joining us here today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Hector. Thank you, thank you. Are you ready for round one, Tracy? I'm ready. Great, let's go. So... I want to start off with round one, where I want to kind of summarize some of the things that I talked in my previous episodes with Susan Dreyfus and Kathy Marklin and, and Charlotte as well from Lutheran Services in America. We talked about some of the challenges and opportunities and some of the things they said regarding the challenges. We talked about staff pay. We talked about funding, inequities, 
intergenerational poverty, antiquated policies, lack of prevention dollars, lack of affordable housing, trauma, uh, infrastructure investments, or lack thereof. You know, some of the opportunities we talked about were analytics to inform and guide the decision-making, the broader involvement of social determinants of health, funding for prevention, mergers and acquisitions, the use of peer supports, 24-7 care, and neurosciences. So Tracy, uh, any additional challenges or opportunities that you want to share, or would you like to expand on any of these things that I already mentioned? Yeah, well, thanks, Hector, again, for um, inviting me to In the Ring. It's really fun to be with you. And, you know, I think what a great way to kick off this round one with a synthesis of your previous guests. It's super helpful to me. And I, I guess I think I'd like to add maybe a few points that build on the conversation and, you know, for kind of further context for your listeners, I was listening to you. It's always embarrassing to have someone read your bio to you, but I was thinking about the my career and really what's embedded behind all that is a um, a deep belief in the need to build cross-sector and cross-system relationships and understand the conditions that honor the personal agency of people and enable families and communities to thrive. So under underneath that kind of public sector time and space has been this real interest in building a bridge um, and in building a bridge to organizations like Lutheran Social Services, where are part of really a vibrant social services sector and being connected to that community is so important. So when I think about the challenges and opportunities that are in front of us right now and listening to what you just summarized, I would say yes to, to all of them and, and add maybe a little bit of additional context of thinking about what we're all up against when we think about the world today, what are the forces at play um, in the broader landscape, um, as well as within the field of social services. And, you know, the challenges are, I think, that we have lived for too long with a fairly, um, if not significantly negative narrative about how people see human services, social services, and it, it gets in the way of our progress. And what do I mean by that? There's a lot that comes up, I think, when you're talking about this space and the general public in particular, that raises these us versus them or deserving and undeserving thinking. And, you know, I think we have to realize how detrimental that is to the progress we, um, we want to make, our, that kind of movement towards our North Star. Um, too often, the narratives reinforce systemic bias and structural racism, and they certainly undercut the strength of the people and the organizations who are responsible for delivering social services. You know, and since I work on the public sector side, but all of that is in a continuum to community-based organizations, I will, you know, also raise that the distrust in government right now um, has rapidly intensified across the nation. Um, really probably with and through the, um, as a result of the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, local governments themselves, um, who may have been less susceptible to some of these critiques, have now found themselves in the center of a highly charged kind of public. And I think we can't ignore that distrust in systems goes beyond how that um, shows up for public sector leaders. It also impacts the broader set of social service delivery system and communities that 
you know, regardless of whether they're um, government funded or grassroots driven. And so I think at a time when the demand on us is high um, and we know that there's a lot of noise out there in that narrative and that distrust, um, and you mentioned, you know, work or pay, um, and you have to think about that in the context of the great migration, right, that we're all experiencing, and you layer that on community-based organizations and public human service agencies who've always struggled, I think, to be able to retract and retain staff given the historic underinvestment in the field. It's like all of that's the noise, right? And so I think about how do we understand that so that we're very present and aware of it, but also resist falling into some of those negative narratives, and particularly in the ways that they can divide the sector. And what I mean by that is divide public servant leaders with social servant leaders um, and thinking about how do we, how do we, the opportunity really, I think, is that the pandemic in particular revealed um, just how interconnected we are as people, you know, from our neighborhood schools, our grocery stores, our childcare access, our health and community supports. And we have, I think, a we being government and community-based social service organizations, as well as philanthropy and a lot of private um, organizations. We have an opportunity because of what's been revealed and that interconnectedness to, to, to really flip that script and change that narrative, which I think will make so many other things that we want to have happen, happen. And so I, I just always am drawn back to understanding how people hear the story of the work we do and how we can start to shape that differently. Thank you, Tracy. You know, you mentioned um, this issue of distrust. It could, it could be a really big problem in our sector, uh, in our industry, just with all of the partners that are involved in everything that we do. Any ideas of how we can garner more trust amongst all the parties to really advance and move health and well-being for all involved? Well, I think one of the things is um, public sector leaders, um, as well as those who are leading in community on the ground, but particularly, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm making this call the public sector leaders, is to ask, how are you actually showing up in community? When are you engaging with the many organizations that you rely on to meet your mission, who are um, you know, more than providers of service. There are folks who are proximate to people on the ground. And, you know, are you only showing up when you're announcing a new um, RFP or evaluating a program? Or are you constantly you know, asking of community, what do you need? What's, what's important to you? What's a priority? And are you visible? And I think, you know, the most inspirational places where I think there's really solid progress being made in communities because of a strong public-private partnership um, is where leaders, you know, set aside really some of those pieces of, um, of ownership and really come together in, in, a, in a shared uh, mission, right, and create the space for that. And so I, I do think that there's, and we maybe we can talk a little later about some specific examples, but I think there's a lot of opportunity in that. Great, Tracy. Um, how about COVID and just equity, diversity, inclusion issues that have surfaced, especially over the last two years? Have this uh, any of these issues exacerbated 
the problem and what ideas do you have around, um, you know, addressing those issues straight on? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if I flip it to what's the collective learning experience um, over the past two years, um, I think that COVID, as well as the greatly expanded calls for racial justice, have brought to light just how important consistently thinking about the data um, in communities at a local level and applying, um, for lack of a, I guess, better term, an equity lens on how we see information about people. I mean, we often talk about the importance of data and analyzing it and using analytics and all of those things are incredibly important. But if we aren't constantly thinking about how to disaggregate that data, know who's who's in it and that these are people, not just um, pieces of information, um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity in that. And clearly communities that did this well over the last couple of years very quickly saw where inequities were occurring, um, particularly um, oftentimes for communities of color, and then we're able to redirect and think about resources differently. That has to not be something, though, that we're just doing in the moment of crisis. It's got to be, you know, systematic and intentional and something that I think public sector leaders, um, at least those that I'm in regular communication with, it's the top of their mind every day, and it needs to be um, in terms of how we think about shifting systems to really work for all people and, um, and what that will take, um, for us to do that together. Yeah. The, the COVID, uh, pandemic is certainly something that we have never seen, uh, in our lifetime. And it was a major disruption, uh, in our lives and it really affected our sector in a profound way. Um, but what would you say are, what are some of the silver linings? I've been really inspired by many people all across the country of how they've risen above and beyond this disruption with COVID and, and just has really, really have done some great things. Would you like to share some of those things that you are aware of and some of those silver linings? Yeah. I mean, there are, there are so many that um, are, I think, inspirational, um, but also practical. (laughs) You know, there were some things that happened, um, in the in the early days of the pandemic, when obviously there was significant um, shutdown of activity, and many people displaced from their um, employment, but you know when you when you step back and look at what happened, you know you had in, in t- first of all, I think the the systems that themselves that we work in were were in many ways far more responsive than we thought they were, <laughs> and resilient, right? So being able to move to virtual type of settings. Um, And not just how staff in an organization might have been connecting with each other, but how people were actually connecting to people in communities. There are a couple of counties in Western Maryland that I'm familiar with that um, very quickly combined their human services public sector leaders in coordination with their community action agencies, which are essentially nonprofit community-based organizations. And they moved quickly to get Wi-Fi into areas and communities that didn't have it to address a lot of older people who were very much at risk of social isolation. Um, And in that same communities, they opened their Head Start 
uh, facilities when when they were actually convening and open them at night so that um, families could access internet, um, both and sometimes in, in uh, you know in, in employment as they were looking for employment services and just needed greater access. So, you know, two things that happen because a public and private sector said we have to move quickly on this and and um, and create space. And there's dozens and dozens of those kind of stories that to me also lift up what is that? So that was an immediate answer, right? But what's the longer term answer there? So, you know, I'm familiar with the state of Oregon who um, during the, again, during early days of the pandemic realized that people needed laptops, but they'd never allow the provider who was providing services of employment to purchase laptops for people. They were always loners, right? Which really made no difference to a family member who had to, you know, um, check it out or go get it. And instead, now they regularly, the community provider now regularly knows they can purchase laptops for people who are looking for employment. I mean, really simple things like that that are now embedded in practice um, because that's the way it should have been in the first place. Thank you so much, Tracy, for sharing those insights. And it's really encouraging to see that even in the midst of the major disruption, the major challenges, there are those silver linings and people have uh, innovated and have done some really creative things. So it's very inspiring uh, to hear uh, their story. So that brings this round to a close. Uh, next, we're going to talk about some game changers in our sector that will allow us to quickly address the needs of our community. All right, Tracy, this is going to be an exciting round. Are you ready? Bring it on, Hector. Awesome. Tracy, what policy changes could be game changers and what is the fuel to get us there? Oh, well, Hector, you know that um, this is right up my alley. I love the policy conversations. And I, you know, I think uh, I'll start with it. We need real system alignment. And what I mean by that is we know that there are many systems that work with and through the social sector, ultimately for people, communities, families things like education and health and public health and housing and employment and justice, work alongside and with the social service sector. And yet we know they're not well aligned. Our federal, our state, our local policy could foster much better conditions and have a much greater impact on the ground. And, you know, it's connected to the way that we think about what it is that anybody needs to live their lives um, and be healthy and well. That's how services are delivered the best is when we really are thinking about it from that person, family, community base. And so when I talk about system alignment, there's lots of things that have happened over the last few years um, and, and some really incremental positive adjustments, federal policy and state policy but I think all of us who work in this space, it's, um, you know, it's far too little progress and too slow. And, you know, the fact of the matter is we have a lot of 
um, laws and guidance that is not consistent across sectors. It doesn't leverage resources in the best possible way. And to me, the game changer in that alignment comes when we see investments as a through line to the organizations who are most proximate to people. Those trusted places like Lutheran Social Services and so many others that are proximate, close to the ground, part of community. To me, that's the fuel that gets us there. And and I'll give you an example of how it plays out in policy. Um, There's been a lot of focus on how we modernize our technology systems as a tool. And, you know, how do we create more efficiently people's access and knowledge of what might be able to support them through a particular time of need or advance um, their family's kind of social and economic mobility. And we had policies over the last decade that have enhanced federal match. And federal match is essentially what the federal government might contribute relative to a state um, in order to invest in new technology and improve things like eligibility systems and other ways that programs interface with people on the ground in a set of services. Um, But what we missed in all of that was a policy mechanism for extending those investments beyond the public sector agency. I mean, if we're going to have a true connection of information about what's happening in a community and the people who make it up and what's needed in terms of that kind of continuum of services, we have to be thinking about community-based organizations. And the same could be said about the workforce, again, something we've already talked about. But, you know, if you had reimbursement policies for training and development that could extend to the social services workforce out in community... And government saw that as an extension, really, of how they get their work done. To me, those kind of infrastructure investments could be absolute game changers if you couple them with that alignment that we really need on on the various kinds of ways that our, our laws ultimately impact how we do service delivery. Thank you, Tracy. So making sure that we can get the funding closest to those organizations that are proximate uh, to the people is one insight that I hear you share. But that's difficult, right? Do you do that at the expense of government and maybe programs that they are running? or So how do you do that? What is the fuel uh, and what is the fuel to get us there? Yeah, I think we have to, I mean, first we have to recognize that we as a country have underinvested in the power really of human services and social services. And that when when there's access to information and when there's alignment across those sectors, the return on that investment is tremendous uh, because you're moving upstream. You're meeting families before any harm um, can happen to them or you're intervening early enough to mitigate that um, stress on a family. And so I think it's, we have to have the long version of, you know, the, the vision to think about it for the long term, because otherwise we'll constantly be in the circle of, oh, but then I'm going to take, you're going to take resources from me to give it to somebody else. And really we need an increased set of resources and a recognition that over time we are actually going to have a greater impact um, on the ground because we've shifted resources. I I think there are other things we could talk about in the funding mix and maybe we'll get to around the way we think about 
uh, the philanthropic partners, um, you know, role in this, um, as well as how to leverage the most of our resources. But I realize it's big, but I feel like if we don't go big and we don't make those kind of systems alignment, we will always have this incremental set of, um, changes that, that are, you know, having a positive impact on the ground, but we'll lack that kind of transformational power we, we want to see. Thank you. What do you think governments can do to just move more quickly to address the needs of community-based organizations? And we know there's lots of barriers. There's partisan politics, there's lack of funding, there's external forces, but even in the midst of those challenges, what can we do uh, to address the needs of, of community-based organizations? Well, you know, most immediately, um, right, like what's right in front of us right now is state and localities have to be intentional about how they're using American Rescue Plan Act dollars. These are still being allocated across the nation. There's a lot of states with legislatures um, who are meeting right now and having these kind of conversations. And there's an opportunity to make some of those thoughtful investments that I just talked about is important to kind of policy decisions to extend to that social sector and think about ways that we support the social and social services on the ground in modernizing the infrastructure um, with really what's been a once in a generation opportunity through through some of those dollars. But I'll I'll step back a second and think um, about this in a little bit more fundamental way, which is I think you know if we're going to scale and sustain change and talk about it in a way that's going to unleash really the full power of the human services and social services sector, I think leaders um, from a public sector perspective have to recognize the formal power they sit with. It's inherent, right, in just being part of a government system. And we have to start asking ourselves, and I mean the we here as public service, human service leaders, um, have to be able to explicitly name what are the power imbalances and do we even understand how power is dispersed and where the imbalances lie and what kind of um, assessment are we thinking about in our own organizations to say, are we really in a place to co-discover with folks on the ground what is most needed, where to put Uh, our energies, where to put those limited resources. It goes back to the question you were just asking um, around, you know, how do you, does that mean that government has to give something up? And I think partly my answer is yes, in that, and part of it giving up is not as much sometimes in resources as that is in how are you making decisions? Have you created feedback loops that bring leaders who are most proximate to community into program and service design, you know, how are you doing that? What, what is, what is required to make that possible? Um, And I, I use the term co-discovery intentionally um, because I think over years of talking with leaders who are much better at this than I on the ground, who are really kind of thinking through too often we think about, well, how are we going to solve it? The problem is we don't even really know what the root cause is. And so we have to be willing to be more transparent um, and co-discover really what is needed. Um, and that takes some time. So I said when I, you know, I said I was going to back up a second. I think sometimes to go faster, we have to slow down enough to say, what are we actually spending time on? And that 
you know, it's building relationships as, as trust building process is social, it's relational, it takes time and it takes intentionality. And I think we have got to create the space for that to happen. And I mean, the collective we from whichever sector we're, we're coming from. Thank you, Tracy. And the word that uh, really intrigues me that you use is co-discover. I really like that word. You know, we have a similar word that we use as part of our values here at LSS and it's co-creation. And we really believe that how can we co-create internally with our teams and with our boards, but also with our partners to yield the best outcome where, where voices are heard from both sides of the, of the, of the aisle, uh, and government, nonprofit, to really realize the best um, returns for the people we serve. So thank you uh, for that insight. That concludes round two. In round three, we're going to discuss how philanthropy can play a bigger role in helping our sector and addressing broader social determinants of health. Okay, Tracy, you ready for round three? You know I am. All right, let's go. How are you seeing philanthropy playing a role in addressing the immediate and long-term needs to improve health and well-being? Well, you know, I think the short answer is I see it evolving along with government um, and the social services sector. You know, philanthropy has to evolve too. Um, And I speak with um, a lot of folks who work with philanthropy um, and national funders regularly. And, you know, the experience of the pandemic, um, the racial justice movement, they've really illuminated more clearly for all of us, including many of those leaders, that we have to consider how philanthropy um, can help accelerate what um, we all know is needed and recognize that things like traditional grant cycles can't solve generational societal issues, right? You can't have a two-year grant and um, and discover everything you need to discover and 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 solve everything that needs to be solved in a community. And so I I think philanthropy is thinking about how it needs to be more agile um, in today's ever-evolving world, um, taking a hard look at their own practices and asking, you know, how do you make the most of investments in ways that can bolster and accelerate that positive impact. Um, and I guess I'll just leave it at this, that, you know, we, I think have long thought that the philanthropic investments can help jumpstart new ideas, um, you know, maybe give us some seed funding for innovation, but, um, by also at the same time that you're testing something, committing to providing that kind of long-term support needed to build capacity in the field, ensure community voice is able to be there and that kind of co-design, co-creation that you just talked about um, is really important. And I am hopeful, um, as hopeful I think as I've ever been, that that philanthropy is is starting to see where it can really be an accelerant to change. You know, that another valuable insight about these grant cycles, um, you cannot address a generational issue in, in two years and it just makes it difficult um, to really obtain that long-term funding to move the needle forward, uh, a great insight. So we have, you know, philanthropists, individual donors. Um, I think there's a lot of flexibility with those individual donors. And many of us nonprofit organizations 
are trying to cultivate those relationships, but it, but, but these are long-term relationships and those funding opportunities don't materialize as quick uh, as we'd like, right. To continue to do the work that we need to do to improve health and well-being. What other partners besides individual donors do we involve in the discussion to, again, help us move that needle, help us address the these multi-generational issues that we're confronted with? Yeah, I you know, I think it's um it's really a whole of community approach, right? People often talk about whole of government, and I really want to change that phrase to whole of community in the sense that um you know, it really takes a lot of folks to come to the table. There's, you know, um, social enterprise type of organizations. There's, you know, private private companies that can be really helpful and they can be helpful in their individual donor status, but they can be also helpful in, in the broader context of really saying, well, what, what am I doing to give back to my community? How am I thinking about that? And how am I thinking about it also, again, in that longer term um, lens? I think government has, for all the reasons I've already shared, has to think about how it's investing in communities in a different way. Um, and also recognize that, you know, some of the ways to cultivate longer term um, relationships and funding support that can supplement um, and accelerate what's happening in a community happens when there is a public-private partnership at the table, right? And when those relationships um, have been built and um, and cultivated, and they can generate more. I think um, you know you. I know you interviewed Susan Dreyfus, um, who's a you know a longtime friend and colleague. But she often talks about you know there's a there's a place where that that all that time you've spent in the relationship is kind of like a flywheel, right? It really accelerates, and all of a sudden, folks are really understanding and seeing what's happening in their community, and it brings more people in. And so I think also you know, celebrating those things more. And it goes back to the narrative we talked about as well. If people understand the sector and its actual impact in community in the ways you and I might know it, but maybe the broader public doesn't, that's a huge way for us to also try to elevate and make visible um, just how important the the sector is and why investing in it for the long run is, um, is a, you know, is a winning situation. Thank you. What are some creative ways that government and CBO, community-based organizations, are working together to co-create new solutions, innovations for the people we serve? What have you seen out there that can inspire us? Yeah, I think I shared a few earlier that were really specific to um, the past couple of years and the pandemic, um, but I'll lift up a couple of things. One is um, just something that's more general, but I it's where I've seen it happen, it's very cool. And that's that communities are using these, what they call data walks, um, as a way to undertake uh, a challenging issue or to, to think about how they're going to advance, um, economic mobility or, um, or think about, um, you know, something maybe more specific even than that in, in their, with their families, like, you know, youth graduation rates or something like that. By literally bringing the data they have um, from public sector, community organizations, um, and people with lived expertise who are part of that community to 
to do a data walk, to see it visually displayed in front of them, to then have conversations together as youth and parent leaders and community leaders and public sector leaders and, and thinking about, okay, so what is that data telling us? What do we know? What do we not know? How do we interpret it? What do we need more of? Um, and using that as a building block to, to make real outcome focused strides in their, um, in, in what they're trying to undertake in that community. The, and then I'll, one other thing I'll share Hector is, um, the state of Oklahoma, um, and this has been over the last couple of years during the pandemic, but they they really sought out community leaders, local philanthropy in their state, um, to ask them about how they thought they should invest federal and state dollars and co-design a transformational pathway of hope, as they put it, a transformational pathway of hope for families, kind of building a coordinated strategic approach to leveraging that public-private partnership. And um, what's resulted is kind of they've shifted from a traditional project-based way of thinking about the work by um, really going, again, to organizations that are closest to the ground, um, making some of those power dynamic shifts so that they're in the state of co-discovery um, and, you know, you talk, if you talk to leaders, um, just this is fresh on my mind because I've um, been in communication with leaders about it lately, it's truly created um, some major shifts. And now they're building field capacity in community organizations um, in ways that are directed at areas of most need um, and are really accelerating. So I think there's more to learn from them is there because they're early in their journey, but it's exactly the kind of thing that I think we need more of. Thank you again, Tracy, for all your great insights. That con concludes this round. But before uh, we take off, we want to ask you, how are you knocking out 2022, both personally and professionally? Oh, I love this question. Um, you know, <laughs> I think I'm knocking it out by reconnecting, <laughs> finding ways to reconnect for myself, which in my case tends to be reading, um, finding time to read, which I love to do, um, reconnecting with my families and friends. So having a few trips planned, which is really exciting and getting to see people. I was able to see my dad at the first part of the year and it had been um, just far too long and it was just so important to be able to spend time with him. And, you know, and then reconnecting with colleagues across the country, um, we're getting really excited to be hosting some events a little later this year um, in person and uh, finding ways, you know, outside of our Zoom settings to, to just be with people and um, and get caught up. So that's that's my knocking it out in 2022. That's awesome. Uh, I love the reconnecting, especially right now after COVID. And I don't know about you, but I'm Zoomed out and I uh, like to be with people and I hope that I can be close to you uh, soon, maybe at an upcoming conference. That so that great. concludes our final round, Tracy. You knocked it out. You did an absolutely outstanding job. Thank you so much for all you do for the sector. Thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you for your friendship. Thank you, Hector. Thank you, Tracy, very much for your great insights. I, I just want to summarize a few of the key points that, that I heard you share that I think are very insightful and worth repeating. You know, we need 
better cross-sector sector relationships and collaborations, you know, government, philanthropy, community-based organizations, persons with lived experience coming together to address our most complex uh, challenges. You know, this negative narrative that sometimes exists within our sector uh, needs to be addressed and talked about, and ultimately, we need to do away with that type of thinking. You talked about this distrust that exists uh, within government. We need to talk about that head-on in order for us to have relationships and collaborations so that we have and can obtain the trust we need in order to move our 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 the health and well-being of those that we serve. You know, health, some of the positive things you talk about, you know, just human services and community leaders coming together to co-create and design something that will improve the lives of those most in need. This movement towards upstream and return on investment related to prevention, let's try to address these issues early so that we can prevent further challenges from happening in the future. We have to modernize our infrastructure. Philanthropy also needs to evolve. You know, this idea of working within the traditional uh, two-cycle, two-year cycle uh, model, where we're, we're trying to address intergenerational um, challenges that have existed for many, many years was a great insight. The last thing, these data walks, I really love it, where we can kind of see that client through a time and period and try to see how we can improve the system for those individuals. Over the next couple of months, I'm going to dig a little deeper into these issues with some CEOs um, that are innovating on behavioral health, mergers and acquisitions, and also healthcare partnerships. I think we're going to all be very inspired by everything that they, they are doing. You can find out more about In the Ring with Hector Colom podcast and all of our episodes on our website, lsswis.org slash in the ring. Let us know what you think about it. And if you have any ideas for future episodes, please like, follow, and share at LSSWIS, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And please subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss any of these exciting conversations in the future. All right. Thank you, Tracy. And to all of our listeners, until next time, con mucho cariño, with much affection. Bye.